0: Good morning. Uh, Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, We'll start in 1 Timothy chapter 3, but we're going to look at a number of different passages this morning. Uh, We sang some uh, rich truths together this morning. Uh, There was one line that stood out to me in, I don't think I've really ever focused on this line, but our call to war, um, let's see if I can remember how this goes. So it says to love the captive soul, and to rage against the captor, Uh, which is a really interesting concept. Because in our modern day context uh, of hostility and just to Christianity, I think we're tempted to rage against the soul and the captor. Um, But it's that distinction of of seeing people as being held captive in their sin and our responsibility to represent Christ to all people but to rage against the captors. That, that line stood out to me, and I hope that's uh, helpful for you and informative for you as you think about just how to conduct yourself in a lost world, not to confuse um, the captor with the captive, I think, is, is important. So, well, Let's pray, and then we'll continue our study this morning. Father, we're grateful to be gathered as brothers and sisters in Christ. We're grateful for how you have saved us out of captivity through the redemption of Christ who bought us out of slavery, and now we are free from the hold of death, and now we are pleased and delighted to be servants of yours. And Lord, uh, our tendency is at times to confuse uh, the captive with the captor and to rage against the lost in a way that um, doesn't represent you well. And so we need wisdom and discernment to um, to conduct ourselves in a way that is gentle toward outsiders, in the hopes that you would bring about uh, repentance and help them see the error of their way. So, Lord, uh, give us wisdom as we as we live in this life to uh, to honor you and to to be a reflection of of your love and your grace in a lost world. As we study this uh, topic this morning, uh, we would ask for your help to kind of understand clearly what your word is saying and to know how to then apply it in the life of the body. And uh, we need your help to do that uh, and uh, wisdom to walk in obedience to you. So it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So there's a story of a Baptist church who couldn't resolve an argument in a congregational meeting over what color the curtains should be in the auditorium. Half the church wanted white and half the church wanted brown. So unable to resolve the matter for themselves, they brought in a mediator who was very good at his job because he chose tan uh, and, and was able to mediate uh, mediate the group. Now as I understand it, this is a true story, <laughs> right? So, uh, And I'm sure there are countless stories just like this one. Of disagreements over petty differences within the church that become big issues uh, because uh, we're not thinking carefully about um, how to conduct ourselves in the household of God. Well, as we continue our series on church membership this morning, we we want to attempt to answer the question this morning of who runs the church. Right, so we've been talking all through a number, of different, uh, a number of different topics as it relates to the church, but this morning I want to talk about this one, of, of who runs the, the church. And when we talk about the church, we're not, remember, we're not talking about a building, but rather we're talking about a group of believers who have covenanted together to, to live out all that the scriptures in, uh, command us to, uh, to be the body of Christ. So who governs? Uh, who leads? Who makes decisions? for this group of assembled believers. And you might be thinking, well, does it really matter? Um, Is it that important of a a question that we need to devote the next several minutes to to discussing this? Well, I think it does matter. I think it matters for a few reasons. Number one, the Lord gives instruction in his word about how a church is to be run. So uh, in our scripture reading, in the passage before you, you're in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul is, is laying out for us uh, different aspects of the organization of the church. And in, in the first portions, he's talking about those who would serve as overseers in the church, what their responsibilities are and what their qualifications should be. He moves on into the second portion of the passage and... Um, Man, I'm in 2 Timothy. That's why it's so confusing. Okay, moves into the second portion of the passage, and he talks about uh, deacons and their responsibility to serve uh, in the church and what their character qualifications are to be. But then notice how he finishes up in verse 14. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm, I'm writing these things to you, that if I'm delayed, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So the church puts on display for the world to see the, the truth of, of, of the scriptures, the truth of the gospel, and a well-ordered church does that better than an unwell-ordered church. And so the Lord cares about this, and if the Lord cares about it, well, then you and I should care about it as well. A second reason why this is an important topic is because much conflict in the church comes from not properly understanding who is responsible to, to, to run the church. So sometimes, in an attempt to include uh, the entire assembly into the decision-making process, a church will shift from congregational church government to congregational micromanagement. And they severely hinder themselves from moving forward in just some of the most basic, simple aspects of church life. At other times in the life of the church, pastors who are called to be overseers and shepherds, uh, they turn into dictators, and they rule the church with an iron fist. And at other times, probably to protect against a pastoral dictator, churches will become deacon-run churches where a few influential people will make all of the decisions for the church. I'm sure you've all been acquainted with or heard of horror stories in, in church. And, and when there's conflict over who runs the church, what it does is it distracts us from our purpose, that is to glorify God. And it distracts us from our mission to make and mature disciples. Instead, we find ourselves just putting out fires and trying to to correct fractions, and we have no impact on the lost world around us. And so if we can think carefully about how to conduct ourselves, we're a more effective witness to a lost world. Thirdly, uh, the reason why this is a helpful topic is because it helps us all understand what our role is within the body of Christ and to fulfill it effectively, right? If I know who's responsible to govern, who's responsible to lead, who's responsible to make what decisions, then I know where I fit within that scheme and I can serve the Lord effectively, okay? So it's good for us to think this morning about this question of who runs the church and about this matter of church government so that we can be a unified body of believers who serve the Lord in a focused and efficient and effective way. Now, one additional comment by way of introduction. In answering this question, who runs the church? We need to make sure that the scriptures are our authority. Now, that seems like a very elementary and fundamental statement and sort of a, one we all sort of assume. Uh, but while this statement should go without saying, there can be the tendency when talking about how to run the church, the tendency to look at corporate America and look at how they run institutions and organizations and to try to model what we do based off of corporate America. And while we might learn things at times from from corporate America, uh, the Word is our authority to shape what we do. You know, there's another place where we look, and this isn't in my notes, so um, this is just free. All right, so... uh, Another place we look is is like how the system of government is set up within the United States, and and we we try to base the similarities of our church off of how government is set up. But at the very foundational level, the the Scriptures are our authority. So when we want to answer this question about how to conduct ourselves, it's the Scriptures to which we turn. And as we turn to the Scriptures, here's what we're going to see. This is really the big idea. It is this, that a local church should be congregationally governed, they should be pastorally led, and they should be deacon served, with each group fulfilling their role with godliness and humility. Okay, so let me say that again. A local church should be congregationally governed, pastorally led, and deacon served, with each group fulfilling their role with godliness and humility. Now let's get into our study, and as we begin, I'm going to begin with a confession, all right? So... Um, I got writing, uh, and I never made it past point one. All right, so we're only going to look at point one this morning. We'll pick up as we go in the weeks to come, uh, point two as well. But first of all, we're going to see that a a local church should be congregationally governed. A local church should be congregationally governed. As we turn to the scriptures, what we see, and I hope to argue from this, this point this morning, is that the final human authority... In the life of the church rests in the whole gathered assembly of the local church. Okay, let me say that again. The final human authority in the life of the church rests in the whole gathered assembly of the local church. Okay, now we call this congregational church government or congregationalism. And it means that the final human authority is not in the elders or the pastors, and it's not in It's not in the general assembly or multiple uh, elders. It's not uh, in an archbishop, and it's certainly not in the pope, okay? Rather, the the final authority, the final human authority for the life of the church is the gathered congregation. But it will not be enough for us simply to unpack that point from Scripture, because what I want to do this, this morning is unpack that point, but then we need to go a step further and ask this question. What is the purpose of the congregation's authority in the life of the church. Okay, so, so why did the Lord put a certain power in the gathered assembly and for what purpose do they have that authority? Because if we don't understand that question, we can bring things to the congregation that are really sometimes a waste of time um, or not really their, their area of oversight and we can end up uh, losing some of the effectiveness in terms of how we minister. I'll, I'll, I'll unpack this as we, as we go. But as we work through this study this morning, I want to ask two questions and give one word of caution. All right. So two questions and one word of caution. So the first question is this. As we're, as we're, as we're looking for uh, at the idea of a local church being congregationally governed, question one is where do we see the congregation using its authority in the Scriptures? Okay. So that's the first question. Where do we see the congregation using its authority in the scriptures? Well, the first area is in defining its membership. Okay, in defining its membership. Now, let's, let's start—actually, let me say this, and I'll have you turn to a passage. But the clearest example of the New Testament, or in the New Testament, of the congregation using its authority is in defining its membership. Who is in and who is out— of, of the church, who is in and who is out as, as a member. And this is most clearly seen in two passages, Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So let's start in Matthew chapter 18. And we'll begin in verse 15. And I'll read the passage and then, and then comment on it briefly before we move to 1 Corinthians 5. This is a familiar passage to you, um, and we just want to draw out one truth from it this morning. But in verse 15, 15, he says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two or three are gathered on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Okay, so Jesus is preparing his disciples for the establishment of the local church. And he's particularly dealing with this issue of what to do when a brother sins against you. And in this passage, he lays out four steps. Right in verse 15, he says, If your brother sins against you, tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. And Lord willing, this is the case in in most situations when there's confrontation between one individual and another. But there's a second step if that doesn't work. Step two is in verse 16. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And it's probably not the case that these individuals have to witness the sin, but they witness whether the individual is repentant or not. Okay, So it moves from step one, which is individual confrontation, to step two, which is two or three witnesses. Now, if that doesn't work, he moves on to verse 17, and he gives a third step. If he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. Okay, so it's to be brought before the congregation. The implication of this passage is the congregation is to to call the individual back to repentance from his sin. And then he gives this process in step four. And if he refuses to listen even to the church... Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Or in other words, he's to be set outside the member of the church, and he is to be treated as someone who is an unbeliever. So the nature of the relationship changes once someone is set outside the church. Now, we'll come to this matter of church discipline in a couple of weeks as we talk about its relationship to membership. But for our purpose this morning, I want you to notice in this passage that the final authority in disciplining the, the members of the congregation it, it, it rests in, not the elders, but it rests in the entire congregation, right? So when you get to step three, he says if he refuses to listen to them, he doesn't say, then tell it to the elders. And then if he doesn't listen to elders, then to remove this individual. No, who does he put as the final, the final step of authority in this process? It is the gathered assembly. Those who are gathered in the name with the presence of Christ among them, they are to determine who is in and who is out of the church as far as its membership is concerned. Now, the same thing is true in 1 Corinthians 5. Okay, so understand this. If, if Jesus is laying down the instructions in Matthew 18, then in 1 Corinthians 5, we have a real-life example of how this took place. So skip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Again, I know these are not new concepts to you, but I, I want to draw out this particular, this particular truth, right? So, so um, in this passage, we have the example of, of church discipline. We have a professing Christian who is living in unrepentant immorality, and the Corinthian church has failed to address the issue. So Paul writes to them to instruct them as to how they're to deal with this. Because if they don't deal with it, he says, it's going to affect the body. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, he says later on in this passage. Now notice, though, who Paul puts in charge of removing the individual. He doesn't do it as an apostle, although maybe as an apostle he had the authority to remove this individual. And he doesn't put it in the hands of the elders of the church Notice what he says. He leaves it to the congregation to be the one who removes this individual from its church. So notice uh, 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 3. Paul says, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Now listen to this next phrase. When you are assembled, or we might say when two or three are gathered, in the the name of the Lord? Okay, so where two or three of you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are, who's the you? It's the assembled group. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So who's the final authority in matters of defining the membership? Well, it is the entire congregation. They have the authority. This is given to them by Jesus, as we've already studied in this series, to exercise the power of the keys of the kingdom, to make an assessment of, of who's in and who's out, to make a judgment of who's in and who's out. Or as we worded it, the, the church has the authority given to them by Jesus to use the front door of membership and the back door of discipline in order that they maintain their purity As a gathered congregation. Now, you might look at these passages and say, yeah, but these passages are only about removing people. They're not about adding people. And I would just say, it doesn't make sense that the church has the authority to remove people, but doesn't have the authority to add them. I think what's happening here in this passage is that the church has the authority to define its membership who's in and who's out. Now, a second place where we see the church uh, exercising its authority is in guarding the gospel, in guarding the gospel. Turn over, if you would, to Galatians chapter 1. Just a couple of pages to Galatians chapter 1. In this passage, Paul is, is writing this letter to the churches of Galatia. He has just recently returned from this area where he saw God do amazing things on, on a mission strip with, with he and Barnabas. They almost lost their lives uh, for advancing the gospel in this area, but God was gracious, churches were established, pastors and elders were appointed over these churches, and now Paul and Barnabas, uh, Barnabas have, have left the area. But shortly after returning home, they catch wind of the fact that false teachers have arisen within these congregations. Telling these new believers that faith in Christ alone was, was not enough for salvation, but they also had to keep the works of the Mosaic law in order to be saved. This was no minor controversy. It was a denial of the gospel that Paul preached of faith and grace alone. So Paul writes this letter back to them, admonishing them The truth. Now there's something helpful for us. I want you to notice to whom Paul writes this letter. So look at verse 2. He says, To the churches of Galatia. Now notice it's not written to the leaders of the churches of Galatia or even to the pastors and the deacons as he might say in Philippians. He says here, To the churches as a whole in Galatia, that the gathered believers. And notice what he tells them in verses 8 and 9 that even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, now, so now I say again, if anyone, preaching, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one we received, let him be accursed. Okay, so the, the, the responsibility of the congregation is to guard the truth. They're to know the truth and to guard the truth. I think one of the primary ways in which they do that is by the adding and removing of those who teach and preach in their, in their assembly. But the church as a whole has this authority and responsibility to guard the gospel. That's what Paul says in 1 Timothy 3 when he says it's the church is the pillar and support of the truth. It's the whole church's responsibility to, to, to guard the truth. So for example, there is a story of, of an elder-ruled congregation or a, a church where only the, the pastors make decisions for what takes place in the life of the church. And this particular situation, on one, one Sunday, they stood up and they said, we have changed our position on marriage, and now we, are an, uh, we will be teaching an opening, open and affirming message on, on, on marriage. And in this particular church, it was not a congregationally governed church, but a church that was governed by the rulers. Now, there's lots of issues there at how they would even get to that point, but notice this. What should have been the congregation's response in that situation is, well, maybe you have changed your mind, but we as a church have not changed our mind because the final authority for defending the truth, it rests in the body of believers, so if I or any other pastors here on staff stand up and proclaim something that is inaccurate, and we're well not inaccurate—we say things that are inaccurate, right? But is is contrary to the truth. It is your responsibility as a as a membership here to remove us from a place of teaching because it's your responsibility to guard the gospel. Okay. So this is the second area in which we see the church using its authority. So the first is in defining its membership. The second is in guarding the truth. And now thirdly, we see that the church uses its authority to select its leaders. Okay, If you would, turn over to Acts chapter 6. The church uses its authority to select its leaders. Acts chapter 6. This is the passage about the selecting of the first deacons or what would become uh, the, known as the first deacons. And as we walk into this passage, we, we walk right into a, a problem in verse 1. That a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, in order to understand this passage, we need to understand a little bit about who the Hellenists were. Uh, nearly all Jews during this time period, they spoke Greek, but the Hellenist Jews, they spoke only Greek, and so they didn't speak in the same mother tongue as the, as the, as the apostles and as probably most of the church, and so the Hellenists had made their home in Jerusalem, but there were certainly cultural distinctions between them and, and probably the majority of the church. And we see here that for some reason, unknown to us, that the Hellenist widows were being neglected in their daily distribution. Now we know from Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 that the early church was generous with its resources, seeking to meet uh, one another's needs. And this daily distribution that's referred to here in verse 1 was the way in which the church cared for the needy. Now, this might not seem like a big issue to you. It's like, well, okay, just start giving it to them because, you know, you're not giving it to them, so we'll start giving it to them. And this is, doesn't seem like a big issue, but as with many conflicts within the local church, they can start as minor things, and if they're not dealt with well, then they turn into major things. So that's the risk here in Acts chapter 6. So the apostles who were serving as the leaders of the church at this time, they work to resolve the problem. And how do they do this? Well, the first thing they do, it says, I forgot to write the verse down here, is in verse 2, it says that they summon the full number of disciples, okay, or of members or followers of the, of the, of the Lord Jesus, those in the church. They assemble the full number. Now, this is a t- difficult task because there are a couple thousand people in the church at this time. And their responsibility or, the, or their, their solution is to assemble the, the entire gathered congregation. But it, it was important because if the problem is going to be solved, then, then the members needed to be involved. Now, once they gathered the full number, they proposed a solution in verse 3. Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So what's their solution? It's to put it in the hands of the members of the congregation, to select from among themselves godly people who can serve in this capacity. And notice the final, what it says here, it says finally it says that, the, that the, salute, the proposal pleased the whole gathering. So the church as a whole was, was pleased by what was, what was proposed and, and carried out in this situation. Now what we have before us is an example of how the local church functioned. The congregation as a whole had the responsibility to select its leaders. Now you say, "Well, that's that's deacons, but what about pastors or elders or overseers and the selection of them?" We'll turn over a few pages to to Acts chapter fourteen. Acts chapter fourteen, and we'll look at the end of Acts chapter fourteen. You remember that Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 14 Paul and Barnabas are on their missionary trip as we as we just talked about to the region of Galatia. And here we have the responsibility of selecting or appointing pastors. Okay, sometimes called elders, sometimes called overseers, but all referring, referring to the same position. Now, admittedly, the church's selection of pastors is not as explicit as the selection of deacons. But I think the New Testament indicates that the local church has the responsibility to elect its pastors. So in chapter 14, we see this, that as they're returning uh, Paul and Barnabas through the area, it says in verse 23 that they appointed elders for them in every church. So Paul and Barnabas had the responsibility of appointing elders to, to lead these churches. And a similar statement is made in Titus chapter 1 when you'll remember Titus is serving in Crete and, and Paul tells Titus, put what remained in order and appoint elders in every city. Okay, so here we have Paul and Barnabas and Titus all in this task of appointing elders. He tells Timothy in 1 Timothy four or 5 not to be hasty in laying on hands. Um, or or appointing elders. So so they had some sort of role in, in appointing leadership over these churches. And at first glance, it seems like Paul and Barnabas and Titus and Timothy were the ones who were solely responsible for this task, apart from any involvement on the congregation. But I think we need to keep two things in mind. Number one, the word appoint in verse 23 means to vote by stretching out of hand. Okay? That's the Greek word that is, that is used here in Acts 14.23. To, to appoint or to vote by stretching out of hand. And the only other place in which this word is used is in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 19, where the appointment is by multiple churches for Titus to travel along with Paul on his missionary journey. So it may be that there were several people involved in this process or a whole congregation involved in this process of raising their hand and appointing the elders that Paul and Barnabas were bringing before them. And I think it's safe. I think, secondly, we see that it's, it's safe to assume that the congregation was involved in this process. Okay, Wayne Grudem makes this statement. He says, these verses, talking about Acts chapter 14, verse 23, these verses need not imply that the apostles alone made the selection, but would certainly include congregational consultation and even consent before an official appointment or installation was made. And he says in parentheses, as with the appointment in Acts chapter 6. In other words, what he's saying is it's safe to assume that when uh, when the elders were appointed, that the congregation was consulted and had a say in who was involved, much like the spirit of Acts chapter 6, where they chose leaders from among their own congregation to serve as deacons. The apostles likely led and facilitated the process, but the congregation was also likely the ones who were choosing the elders from among themselves. As you go through the rest of the New Testament, there are a number of examples of, of the congregation appointing people to various roles. I'll just read a list. So Titus was appointed by the churches to travel with Paul, 2 Corinthians eight nineteen. The church in Jerusalem sent Barnabas to Antioch to see about the conversions taking place among the Gentiles, Acts 11. Paul and Barnabas were commissioned to serve in Galatia by the church in Antioch, Acts chapter 13. Paul and Barnabas were sent to Jerusalem from Antioch to resolve the issue of Gentile salvation in Acts chapter 15. So you see these, all these other places where people are being appointed and sent and commissioned to fulfill different tasks, and they're doing so by local churches. Okay, so these are three examples, these these three areas of where we see the church using its authority in in the life of the or in the New Testament. Okay, they they define their membership, they guard the gospel, and they select their leadership. Okay, so when we look at the New Testament, we ask this question: Where do we see the church exercising its authority or using its authority? These are the places where we see it in 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 defining our membership guarding the gospel and selecting her leadership. Now let's move on to the second question then. And this to me is I think where things get more interesting. All right. So if you've if you barely made it through the tedious task of, of looking at these passages, I think this is this is where we start to connect some dots, okay? So question two. When we tie these passages together, what can we determine about the purpose Of the church's authority? Okay, so think about that question. When we take the responsibility to to define the membership, and we take the church's responsibility to guard the gospel, and we take the church's responsibility to elect their leaders, and if we were to, to tie these passages together, what would we say is the purpose of congregational authority? well, I don't think that authority has been given to the congregation so that they can weigh in on matters of what color the carpet should be. Or should we purchase a copier? All right? You've got, like, the biblical categories here of the church's authority, and then you've got these really dumb categories of color of carpet and and purchases of of copier machines, okay? If If we don't distinguish or don't Understand the purpose of the church's authority, then we we start to move into congregational micromanagement now we don't vote about the color of carpet here, and I, I don't even have a vote about the color of carpet here, okay, but if the congregation is invested in those kinds of decisions it's it becomes very tedious in in terms of what their what their authority is is doing okay uh, also I'd add this the church is not intended to be a democracy established to see that every person's interests are represented okay the, the point the purpose of a of, of 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 a democratic process in our church is not to elect leaders who will then invest in in my particular areas of interest in the ministry that's not what we're doing when we're electing leaders we're electing leaders and saying serve us in a, in a godly way and lead us in a godly way so that the whole church can move forward. It's not a, it's not a political jockeying to put people in position who will, who will then carry out what we want to see carried out. Okay? So that's not what the church's authority is for. So then what is the purpose of the church's authority? Okay, and I think if we sum these passages up or we connect them, we might say this. That the church's authority is given... So that the church will take responsibility for any decision in which the integrity of the church as a gospel witness is at stake. I want you to catch that statement, so listen carefully to it again. The church's authority is given so that the church will take responsibility for any decision in which the integrity of the church as a gospel witness is at stake. So, when we, when we talk about these major issues of, of who's in and who's out, and, and what we're going to believe and, and who's going to lead, well, these are essential to the church serving as a gospel witness, and the church should weigh in with her authority. There are other things that are not important to the congregation, the governing of, uh, rule of the church. But these matters are are really important because they affect the integrity of the church as a gospel witness at stake. So let's take two examples. Should we go with white or brown curtains? That's one scenario. A second scenario, should we keep on our membership rolls a man who is living in open immorality? Okay? Scenario one about the curtains does not impact the integrity of the church as a gospel witness. So it's probably not going to be a congregational decision. However, scenario two of an individual who's on the membership rolls living in open immorality, that impacts the the church's ability to serve as a gospel witness. Okay, their gospel testimony is at stake. So that helps us then begin to think like, okay, which matters should be should be put before the congregation's authority and which matters are are, are something somebody else can do because the authority is to protect the integrity of the church as a gospel witness, okay? Now in saying that, let me tease this out a little bit more it's helpful to note that a church may bring other things before their congregation to vote that are not just matters of membership, the truth, and And who the leaders are. So anything that sort of touches on the church's ability to be a gospel witness, we might bring before before the whole congregation to weigh in. So the Bible says nothing really of church budgets. But to the degree that a church budget reflects and and hinders or enables the church's ability to be a, a gospel witness... Well, then we would bring a we would bring a a budget before the before the congregation, so that we can think clearly about how to how to minister well and and how to use our resources. Okay, and I think we would say that from from context to context, things might change as to what we bring before the congregation. So, in a larger church, if if a church had like a budget of four million dollars and and they were going to decide to buy a $20,000 van for, for the use of their ministry, well, in a $4,000 budget, it's pretty insignificant in terms of using that 20000 to purchase a vehicle. So it might be just something that the, that the leadership decides to do. However, if you have a church that has a budget of $100,000, and you're going to buy a vehicle for $20,000, well, that might be a congregational vote because in that purchase, you could severely hinder the church's ability to be a gospel witness. So from, from one context to another, some decisions may change, but we're thinking in this, in this category that the congregation's authority is to help protect us as a gospel witness and, and allow us to faithfully serve. Okay, so the, the point is this. This is why the Lord has given the congregation authority. Not to micromanage, but to weigh in on those particularly important matters of, of protecting our ability to serve Christ as a faithful gospel witness. Now, let me finish then with a warning. Okay, a warning. If everything I've said so far is true, and that the Lord is in, has, has given the, the church a certain authority— then the church needs to be careful in its practice of membership, all right? So in, in any form of government, the decisions are only as good as the people making them, all right? Or in a democratic style of leadership, you have the types of leaders you have because of the type of people that are electing those leaders. So it's a scary thought, Right? Um, because we have the type of leaders we have not like in the church, but in, the, in our society, in a democratic style of leadership, we have the type of leaders we do because of the people that that are in our that are in our nation, and so whether you're excited about that or or, uh, or not, I mean, I think that if there's any indication here, we should raise the, the age for voting to like 55 at least. All right, so we can end up with different uh, with different leaders. And then limit it to 60. All right, no, All right, just kidding. All right, that was free too. All right, it wasn't on my, wasn't on my, in my notes. Um, so you understand that this concept, though, that the leadership or the decisions that are made are a, a reflection of the health or lack of health of the people. Okay, so this is why historically Baptists have been committed to this principle of regenerate church membership. Because if the congregation as a whole is the final human authority, then it is essential that the final human authority is made up of those who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's important to have believers weighing in on the decisions that are made as a church. So in early America, the first churches to drift into theological liberalism, were congregational churches. If you go to Connecticut today or you go to to New England today, you will see congregational churches, multiple congregational churches in, in every town. Almost none of them still preaching the gospel. Because what happened was they were giving membership rights to unbelievers, but they were also a congregationally governed church. So within a generation or two, you had the church predominantly governed by unbelievers. And unbelievers elect false teachers, and that becomes the suicide of the church. Okay? So that's why Baptists have always been committed to regenerate church membership, because they're committed to congregational church government, but they also are committed to that congregation being followers of Jesus Christ. And as we'll talk about in a few weeks, they're also committed to faithful church discipline. Because what if someone professes Christ, they come in and then starts to give evidence of the fact that they're not really a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, in order to protect the purity of the church, they remove the individual because that assembly is making decisions for the life of the church. And Baptists have been committed to what is called individual soul competency. Because we believe that the the government can be the whole the whole body of the church because each believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit and then competent to weigh in on matters of membership and leadership and protecting the church. So we believe in individual soul competency. The members as a whole can can lead and can, can weigh in and make decisions. So who runs the church? Well, ultimately, it is the congregation. The congregation made up of regenerate church members who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and competent to weigh in. So the Lord has placed in their hands the responsibility to protect itself as a gospel witness. Now, let me just talk about one implication. Okay? One implication is this. That if we, the people, govern the church, then it is absolutely essential, that is on an individual level, we are healthy and obedient believers. That we're careful to watch over our walk and watch over the walk of one another so that a healthy body of believers can produce a healthy style of leadership and governance. Because okay, as I said, the, the, the decisions that are made, the leaders that are elected, are only as healthy as the people that are making those decisions, so this past week I was talking to uh, to to someone who d- doesn't attend here, talking about a, an experience in a church that they had about a pastor who was involved in immorality. Numerous people knew about this, and nobody was doing anything about it. Okay, so it's like, well, where are the believers who are following Christ who are responsible to make these decisions? Or sometimes in our in our in our current state of 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 celebrities and and attraction to celebrities. We're putting people in leadership positions who are charismatic or or have great administrative and leadership skills because that's what's a priority to the people. But if the word is a priority to the people, then we know what the the most important thing is godliness and ability to teach and handle the scriptures. And if the church has that priority, then they're putting those kinds of people before the church to, to lead and to care and to shepherd the church. Okay, so we see why, why it's so important on an individual level to be healthy because it impacts then the health of the body as a whole and who ends up leading the church as pastors and deacons. Well, I've waxed the elephant long enough on this this morning. And so that's, it was a joke, right? It was wax eloquent was the typical, all right, so yeah. Um, but we'll pick up with this next week as we move forward in terms of what it looks like to be pastorally led and deacons served as a congregation. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and the attention to detail that it gives as to how we are to conduct ourselves. You have called us as a church to be the pillar and support of truth, to, to put it on display. So how does the world see the gospel lived out? They see it as members of a local church love and care and commit to one another make decisions together and guard the unity together and Lord we would ask that you would help us to be a healthy representation of the truth in this community even this Wednesday as, as we have our service in, in Depot Park and, and we reflect the truth of the gospel in the way that we conduct ourselves with one another would you even use us as a testimony to this lost world Help us, Lord, to be a healthy church, committed to making wise and godly decisions, prioritizing what you prioritize, so that we can serve you faithfully for decades to come. For it's in Christ and then we pray. Amen.